0: Welcome to Clearly Quaker, an ongoing series of podcasts by Salem Quarterly Meeting, part of the Religious Society of Friends. Salem Quarterly Meeting is an association of seven Southern New Jersey Quaker meetings within Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. All right,
1: it is 10 a.m. Good morning, everyone. I am Patience, and I am the facilitator with this presentation, along with Joshua Ponter, Our speaker today is Gary Smith, who has been involved in the local history community for decades as a docent and part of the Griffith Morgan Historical Society and recently wrote a book, uh, The Light of the New World on the topic. I hope you all enjoy this presentation on Quaker history for Tricorder. Over to you, Gary.
0: Thank you, Patience. Um, I'm Gary Smith and I'd like to thank the Tricorder Committee for asking me to speak today about the origins of the Quaker movement, how it affected Colonial America and uh, the Quaker legacy in our country today. Uh, about me, I've been attending Quaker meetings since the mid-1990s. I was a member of Haddonfield Friends for a number of years, also attended Newton meeting, and now I'm a member of Morristown meeting, and occasionally attend uh, Mount Laurel meeting as well. Uh, my interest in Quaker history started when I learned about and historic home in my neighborhood called the Griffith Morgan House. Uh, this house was built in the 1690s and was the home of early Quaker settlers who were also uh, members of Morristown Haddonfield Meeting. I'm um, a uh, past chair of the committee that uh, preserves the, the Griffith Morgan House. And um, while I was there, I did a lot of write, uh, reading about the first Quaker settlers in our area. And I found to be a very fascinating period of history. So uh, Quakerism began in England sometime around 1650, and at this time only a couple of generations had passed since the Bible was first translated into English, and printing press made it available for anyone to read. And the availability of the Bible ended the monopoly of the priesthood over religious knowledge, and the Bible actually became the widely most misread- widely widely read book of the time, and uh, probably the only book that most people read. And people memorized it and would quote it in daily conversations like people today might do with uh, Beatles songs and uh, questions about religion were the leading issues of the day. Also at this time, a civil war divided England. Uh, This was a war fought between a Puritan parliament and Royalists loyal to King Charles I. He was also the leader of the Church of England. Near the end of the war, Oliver Cromwell and the parliamentary army captured King Charles and had him beheaded for crimes against his own people. Now the killing of King Charles had a profound effect on all the people in England because these people were raised with the belief of the divine right of kings, which was the idea that God himself had appointed the king to rule over them. So his death uh, not only upset the social order, but it also ended the official state monopoly on religion. And people began looking into their Bible to seek answers in these uncertain times in which they lived. And many new sects appeared as people shared their ideas and gained following. So into this mix came George Fox. Uh, Fox was born in a Puritan village in this, this year, England. And uh, 1643, at the age of 19, he left home and driven by what he called his inner voice. For several years, he uh, continued to travel around the country as his religious beliefs took shape. And he studied the Bible and uh, he sought out uh, priests and ministers and other seekers, but he couldn't find any of them gave him any uh, real comfort or spiritual understanding. And as he became more disillusioned, he realized that he could himself form a direct relationship with God without the need for priests or ministers, as he later described, as I had forsaken the priests, so I left the separate preachers also, and those esteemed the most experienced people, for I saw there was none among them who could speak to my condition. And when all my hopes in them and in all men were gone, so that I had nothing outwardly to help me, nor could tell what to do, then I heard a voice which said, There is one, Christ Jesus that may speak to thy condition. And from this experience, Fox came to believe that he as an individual could form a, could have a spiritual experience and form a direct relationship with God without outside assistance. So inspired by this experience, Fox began to preach a message that it was Christ himself who had come to teach people. So Fox considered himself to be restoring a true and pure Christian church. And through prayer and meditation, he came to a greater understanding about the nature of his faith and what was required of him. It was a process he called uh, an opening. So in 1647, Fox began to preach publicly, uh, meeting in marketplaces, fields, and sometimes even churches after the service. Uh, He was a powerful preacher and he began to attract a following. At first they called themselves the children of the light or friends of the truth or later to simply friends. And Fox's original intention was not to establish a new sect, but only to preach what he saw the pure and genuine uh, principles of Christianity in their original simplicity. Now, at this time, there were a great many different Christian sects and groups, each with their own opinions. And in this atmosphere, Fox gave an opportunity to pull forward his own beliefs to his personal sermons. Uh, usually, Fox's preaching was grounded in scripture, but was mainly affected because of the intense personal experience he was able to project in 1650 fox was arrested and brought the court on charge of blasphemy uh, fox told the judge that he would tremble at the word of the lord and the judge scornfully called him a quaker so the name quaker began as a ridicule but became widely accepted and used by quakers themselves so about this time silent worship punctuated by individuals speaking as the spirit moved them seems to have been established, though it's not uh, recorded how this came to be. By 1651, Fox had gathered other talented preachers around him who run the country, spreading the Quaker message. Known as the Valiant Sixty, these preachers came mostly from northern England and spread the idea of friends across England, Ireland, and Wales. Now, At a time when most other preaching was done by well-educated, ordained male clergymen, the Valiant Sixty were ordinary farmers and tradesmen, and several of them were women because they came from the northern part of England, they were considered backward. Uh, one of these early ministers was Margaret Fell, the wife of an important magistrate in Lancaster. After hearing Fox preach, she opened her home, uh, known as Swathmore Hall to Fox, and it became a base of operation for the early French ministry. And after the death of her husband, Margaret and George Fox were married in 1669. So Margaret Fell and the other women Quakers in the ministry were significant in Christian history because for the first time since the age of Mary Magdalene and the apostles, women were spreading Christ's gospels and with a clarity not often heard by other priests and ministers at the time. So while Fox and the other Quakers preached to all who would listen, they also believed in expressing their beliefs in the way they lived, including the equality of women. Uh, they would express their beliefs through their speech and friends adopted the custom of using the words thee and thou instead of you when speaking to a single person even if that person was a nobleman or noble woman. Another way friends expressed their faith was through their manner of dress. In an era of extravagance, uh, Quakers chose to dress plainly, limiting lace, frills, ornamentation, sometimes even eliminating buttons and belt buckles. Now Fox's preaching was seen as a threat to the established churches and frequently led to his arrest. Between 1650 and 1673, he was in prison more than eight times, several times, for more than a year. Charges usually included causing a disturbance or traveling without a pass. He and other Quakers were charged under laws forbidding unauthorized worship. In prison, Fox continued writing and preaching feeling that imprisonment brought him into contact with people who needed his help, the jailers as well as his fellow prisoners. He also sought to set an example by his actions, uh, turning the other cheek when being beaten and refusing to show his captors any dejected feeling. Other Quaker behaviors motivated motivated by belief in spiritual equality, um, refusing to use or acknowledge titles, taking hats off in court or bow to those who consider themselves so social superior. These were seen as disrespectful and not received well by the upper classes who were used to being treated uh, very deferentially by the lower sorts. And uh, they felt that Quakers were undermining the very foundations of the social order. So people responded by bringing false charges against Quakers knowing that the uh, Quaker would refuse to swear an oath or address the judge as your honor and risk being thrown in jail for contempt. Uh, Fox was able to come to an accommodation with Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan dictator who ruled England after the death of Charles I. In 1655, he was arrested and brought before Cromwell. Uh, Fox convinced Cromwell he had no tension in, of uh, taking up arms in England's religious wars. Cromwell was very moved by Fox's preaching and actually invited him to return to his home. Um, after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 under Charles II, the persecution of the Quakers returned stronger than ever. England was still a nation divided along religious lines and after a rebellion by a group called the Fifth Monarchist, Charles was suspicious of the many different religious sects in the country. Also many Quakers had originally fought for the Puritans under Cromwell, and they received extra attention from the authorities. So Parliament enacted laws which forbade non-Anglican church religious meetings. And under these laws, many friends, including women and children were jailed over the next two and a half decades. Arrests often meant long prison stays in filthy prisons in which many uh, perished and others had their health ruined. Those arrested were also subject to heavy fines in which their homes and properties were sold off but a fraction of their uh, true value to pay as many as 15,000 Quakers were imprisoned under Charles II. So Friend's initial response to the persecution was to try to explain to the King and their fellow countrymen that they were not a threat to anyone and that their religious views were actually Christian. To get these messages across, two remarkable documents were written that are still used by uh, Quakers today, the Peace Testimony and Barclay's Apology. Well, the Peace Testimony runs about 2,000 words long, but it's most quoted paragraph says, Quote, the spirit of Christ, which leads us into all truth, will never move us to fight or war against any man with outward weapons, neither for the kingdom of Christ, nor for the kingdoms of this world. Uh, This testimony is still what Quakers are best known for today. Um, Now, Robert Barkley, who was a university educated theologian and a close friend of Fox, wrote a book called The Apology for True Christian Divinity. Now, the word apology now means to ask forgiveness, but at the time, it was meant as an explanation. In the apology, Barclay systematized the charismatic message of George Fox and perhaps saved the Quaker movement from extinction by giving Fox's preaching an intellectual form and explaining it in a rational way. Despite Quaker attempts to appease the authorities, persecution and arrest continued. Even William Penn, who was one of the most influential people in England, was arrested for attending a Quaker meeting in London. To escape persecution, Quakers began looking toward establishing a colony in North America, which by 1675, England had established colonies in North America and the Caribbean for some time. Uh, Virginia on the Chesapeake Bay had been settled for nearly 70 years, and Massachusetts in New England for nearly 50. And after a 1664 war with Holland, England seized the middle Atlantic coast from the Dutch, which joined their New England colonies to their Chesapeake ones. And in 1672, Fox toured the area. I thought it would be a good place to settle. So in 1674, King Charles conveyed title of the land that would become New Jersey to his brother James, who in turn sold it to Sir John Berkeley and George Carteret. The land was given the name New Jersey in honor of the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel, where King Charles received shelter while in exile. The name Jersey itself is derived from Julius Caesar, who may have occupied the island, and the Latin name for New Jersey is Novo Cesarea. So uh, Barclay and Carteret sold the eastern half of Jersey to a group led by Robert Barclay, who encouraged the settlement by Scotch refugees and others, while West Jersey was sold to two other Quakers, Uh, John Fenwick and Edward Billing. Although Billing was well known for his efforts to provide relief for persecuted Quakers, unfortunately he went bankrupt and William Penn and the other leading Quakers became trustees of his estate to help his plans establish a colony. Uh, John Fenwick also made plans to settle in the area, but he did so separately from Billing, Penn, and the others. Uh, Fenwick reached the Delaware River in late November, 1675, with approximately 150 settlers. Among them were former Puritan soldiers who had fought under Cromwell, tradesmen and yeoman planners. They established their settlement at Salem across the river from the town of Newcastle in what's now Delaware. Uh, Acting separately of Penn and the others, Fenwick ran into trouble establishing title to the land he settled in and was eventually arrested by the Royal Governor of New York and deported back to England. Um, To finance their colony, Billing, Penn, and other trustees formed a joint stock company to sell shares of their proprietorship. 120 shares were sold mostly to English and Irish Quakers. And In 1676, as part of the effort to attract settlers, Billing created a document called the Concessions and Agreements, which would form a charter for the government of the colony. Possibly written with help from William Penn, the Concessions and Agreements were written in common language, uh, that could be understood by plain people and reflected Quaker, govern, Quaker ideas on humane governance. It provided for an elected assembly that would make and repeal laws, It guaranteed trial by jury with charges read in open court. It forbade debtors prison and extended legal protection to Native Americans. Most important, the concessions and agreements guaranteed freedom of religion. Uh, the concessions and agreements were unique for the day, both for defining the limits of government and providing freedom of conscience. Uh, Thus, the settlers of West Jersey would enjoy liberties found in few other places in the world at the time. By the summer of 1677, Billing had gathered 230 settlers who sailed on a ship from London uh, called the Kent. As they made their way down the River Thames, they passed the Royal Yacht with King Charles aboard. Being told the Kent was filled with Quakers leaving England, Charles waved goodbye and wished them Godspeed. Uh, the Kent arrived at Newcastle on August the 16th and cleared the Customs House at Newt. The Kent then landed the settlers at Raccoon Creek near a small community of Sweden Finnish settlers. Uh, many Quakers would later imitate the log cabin dwellings used by the Swedes and Finns in building their own homes. Uh, that oct- September and October, with the help of local Dutch merchants, the settlers made three large land purchases from the Native Americans. And these purchases encompassed the land along the Delaware River, what's now Gloucester, Camden and Burlington Counties. The Native Americans were paid with manufactured goods, such as iron cookware, farm tools, cloth items, articles of clothing, musical instruments, gunpowder and rum. Um, The settlers took great care to treat the natives fairly to keep their relations peaceful. So the Kent settlers traveled to a site of a broad meadow on the river shore Across a small creek from an island in the river and laid out the town of Burlington. A wide street was laid out called High Street, north of which the settlers from Yorkshire built their houses with the London settlers taking the land to the south side of the street. A second street running parallel to the river was also laid out and where the two streets met became the center of town with the marketplace and a large large tent set up for meeting for worship. The settlers first lived in caves carved into the riverbank until rough wooden huts were built and plastered with clay for protection when the cold weather came. Over the winter, the river froze and became impassable, which led to food shortages. But despite the hardships, the settlers held on and their community grew as more ships arrived over the next following years. The first ship to sail directly from England to Burlington was the Shield in 1681. Uh, Also in November of 1681, a group of 100 Irish Quakers belonging to six households came to West Jersey on a ship called the Owners Adventure. They spent the winter in Salem and in spring moved to establish their own settlement called Newton in what's now West Collingswood. They claimed their land in the area between the Pennsauken and Timber Creeks and the area became known as the Irish 10th. So from these footholds in Salem, Burlington and Newton, the Quaker community in West Jersey spread and grew. In 1682, William Penn himself arrived and planted the seeds for another Quaker colony, Pennsylvania, with Philadelphia as its principal settlement. These combined Quaker colonies on the Delaware River formed what's been termed a Quaker Commonwealth. Uh, Social life in West Jersey was very much a Quaker way of life. The Quaker The Quaker meeting provided firm standards in both spiritual and community affairs and checks to those whose behavior fell short. Soon after arrival, general meetings where friends from a wide area gathered for worship and socialized were held at yearly or semi-yearly intervals and lasted several days. The first of these was held at Salem and attracted people from Newton, Gloucester, and Burlington. Uh, Later Regular monthly and quarterly business meetings were set up similar to the system that Fox had developed in England. Other meetings called preparative meetings also met under the care of the monthly meetings and were attended by Quakers unable to worship at the site of monthly meeting in the area due to distance or weather. Among the responsibility of monthly meeting was to record births, deaths, marriages, um, build and maintain the meeting house provide a burial ground and issue certificates to those leaving the community and check the certificates of newcomers uh, to safeguard clearness for marriage, uh, supervise meetings under its care, sanction new meetings and appoint delegates to quarterly meeting. Uh, Separate business meetings were held for men and women with the men's meetings focused on matters of property and finance, while the women's meetings focused on domestic matters such as marriage, childcare, and assistance for family in need. The monthly meeting also exercised authority over conduct and morals. It settled conflicts between members and discouraged friends from taking each other to court. Also, all marriages in the meeting had to be by consent of the meeting and marriages with outsiders was not allowed. A Salem Monthly Meeting first met on July 31st, 1676, in a log cabin home of uh, Sam and Ann Nicholson, who also donated 16 acres for a burial ground. Still there today. Burlington Monthly Meeting first met on July 15, 1678, at John Wollstone's house. In 1682, Burlington Meeting made plans for a great meeting house. It had a unique hexagonal shape and was later enlarged to be the largest meeting house in West Jersey. For a time the provincial court met there, although this was continued, discontinued after 1691. The first quarterly meeting of friends was held in the Burlington area and met in 1681. Uh, Each meeting sent six delegates and they met at the home of William Biddle in Mansfield and met there until Biddle's death in 1711. The role of quarterly meeting was to set balance between meetings, address conflicts in between meetings, uh, review some decisions, as well as appoint guardians for orphans. Also each quarter made attempts to convert Native Americans to Christianity. A Salem Quarterly Meeting was originally a combined meeting, a Salem and Newton meeting, but the arrangement wasn't really practical since these two meetings are about 40 miles distant. Although uh, Elizabeth Haddon may have made good use of her time on one such journey, uh, in his Tales from a Wayside Inn, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that on her way to Salem Quarterly Meeting, Elizabeth Haddon spent some quality time with traveling Quaker minister John Estow and they were married shortly after. Quaker uh, Elizabeth and the other Quakers, who lived along Cooper's Creek, established a meeting in Haddonfield in 1695, which grew to incorporate a Newton meeting, and eventually the quarter was moved to Haddonfield in 1722. Now, out of the general meetings uh, grew the idea of a yearly meeting that encompassed both worship and business, and the first yearly meeting for all monthly meetings along both sides of the Delaware River in West Jersey and Pennsylvania was held in 1685. It alternated between Burlington and Philadelphia until 1764, when it was permanently located in Philadelphia. The yearly meeting consisted of women, men's meetings, uh, and the meeting of ministers. Matters of high importance were referred to yearly meeting by the quarters. They also received and spread epistles received from Quakers in England and issued their own epistles to encourage friends' faith and sent queries to monthly meetings to consider. And many of these epistles and queries reflect the Puritan side of early Quakers, discouraging sports, gambling, drinking, and womanizing. Open evening meetings for worship were addressed by well-known traveling ministers called public friends, and were marked with a spirit of zeal, similar to today's uh, evangelicals. The records of monthly, quarterly, and yearly meetings show their work in action. So in August, 1678, Burlington Monthly Meeting charged uh, William P. G. and John Wollston to receive donations from the poor. And in 1682, Thomas Budd of Burlington was instructed to care for a poor family in the meeting, as well as several orphans. About the same time, the Women's Meeting issued an epistle to protect hired servants for unjust dismissal. In 1682, an epistle was received from the London Yearly Meeting pointing about extravagant clothing with superfluous buttons, the use of tobacco, and also the buying and selling of luxury goods. In 1687, uh, Burlington quarter sent an epistle to London, asking that English Quakers not apprentice their children to non-Quakers in America. So the meeting was responsible for the behavior of its members, and everyone was judged by those within the worship, and public approval and disapproval was tested by the month Local monthly meeting. So one example of how the role of the meetings played in daily life comes from the story of Griffith Morgan and Elizabeth Cole. Now, Elizabeth and her husband and her husband Samuel owned more than a thousand acres in what's now Cherry Hill. Samuel went away to England on family business and was away for a year. Uh, Elizabeth went to Philadelphia to meet his ship when it was supposed to return, but when the ship arrived, her husband wasn't on board. So instead, she met Griffith Morgan, uh, who was a Welsh Quaker who owned land where the Pensalkan Creek flows into the Delaware. And seeing her alone with her children, Morgan offered to help. And uh, he found a place for her to stay while he went to find out what happened to Samuel. Morgan learned that Samuel had died on the return voyage and he broke the news to Elizabeth and escorted her and her family back to the farm. Well, with Elizabeth being alone and Morgan being single also, he began spending time with her. And within a couple months, they were married in a civil ceremony in Philadelphia. And this didn't make the uh, local quarterly meeting very happy. For one thing, they hadn't given permission for them to marry, and they weren't married in a Quaker meeting. Also, the rule was for a widow to spend a year in mourning before remarrying, which Elizabeth didn't do. So Morgan and Elizabeth were summoned before a quarterly meeting and rather than risk being read out of meeting and losing their friends and uh, neighbors, uh, Morgan and Elizabeth expressed their regrets and they were restored to meeting. Uh, Morgan and Elizabeth stayed together the rest of their lives. They built a big home. It still stands in Pensacola. and Elizabeth's children from both her first and second marriage and their descendants became prominent members of Morristown Haddonfield friends. So as uh, The original communities along the river shore spread out and the settlers took up new land. The original meetings sanctioned new meetings for those who lived uh, far away from the original meeting houses. In 1681, Burlington gave their blessing to new meetings in Rancocas, and also at the uh, falls of the Delaware near modern day Trenton and at Pine Point near Cooper's Creek. Uh, The Pine Point meeting merged with the Irish Quakers who arrived in Newton at 1682, which in turn sponsored another meeting for friends along penn Creek in 1686 and Haddonfield in 1695. In 1705, the penn meeting moved a few miles down the road and became Moorestown meeting. They met for a few years in a log cabin and after that barn built a stone meeting house, which lasted until 1802 when the current meeting was built. And as the population shifted inland from the Marshy River shore to the rich interior farmland, other meetings were formed. Uh, Evesham and Mount Laurel meetings began in private homes and eventually became their own monthly meeting. A meeting house in Mount Holly was built in uh, 1716 also. From Salem, other meetings were formed as well. Hancocks Bridge in 1679, Greenwich in 1686, and Woodstown in 1719. Another meeting was organized in Cape May in 1700, which in turn planted the seeds for other meetings along the Atlantic coast. William Penn had urged the creation of friend schools and at his assistance the first Quaker school in America was founded in Philadelphia in 1683. The larger meetings in West Jersey followed his example. In 1715, land was donated for the establishment of a Quaker school in Morristown and another Quaker school opened in Haddonfield in 1721. Um, Both of these schools continue into existence today. So as we've seen, the monthly meetings enforced Quaker morality and played an important part in attaining a high degree of social stability, which was one factor factor that led to the colony's success. Another factor was the character of the Quakers, the settlers themselves. Uh, Drawn mostly from the artisan and merchant classes, Quaker settlers were reasonably well-educated, enterprising and hardworking. So much so that local magistrates in England often stopped them from emigrating, complaining that the best people are leaving. Um, The settlers also benefited from peaceful relations with the Native Americans. Some historians have said the Lenape tribe who were here before the Quakers were a peaceful tribe. Not really, because uh, the Dutch who preceded the Quakers had numerous conflicts and suffered several massacres at the hands of the Lenape. The Quaker approach of treating the Lenape respectfully and fairly seems to have been an important part of maintaining peace between the two people. The history records that Quaker, West Jersey was the only English colony in America not to suffer war with the Native Americans. Unfortunately, the ever-increasing number of English immigrants crowded the Lenape out of the area, and with their numbers greatly reduced by disease, they left the area. And the settlers also found themselves on prime agricultural land and were soon able to produce surplus food for export. This food was shipped to the English in the Caribbean where it fed the enslaved Africans who produced the sugar crop. With cash in hand from the plantation owners, Quaker merchants then sent their ships to England to buy manufactured goods unavailable in the colonies, which they brought back to Philadelphia and sold to Quaker farmers. So this triangular commerce allowed many Quaker planters to thrive and it soon developed the labor shortage. Um, To prevent large absentee landholders from dominating the affairs of the colony, West Jersey originally mandated that no man could take up more acreage than he and his family could work. Servants counted as members of the household and many early settlers brought their servants from England or purchased the indenture of servants transported over by merchant sea captains. Indentured servants, however, could only be held for a number of years, then they must be set free and given their own land. In addition, servants could flee their masters and hide elsewhere under new identity. Some Quaker merchants had spent time in the Caribbean and were familiar with the institution of African slavery and purchased slaves to work their farms. And although many of these uh, slave owners had originally fled England to escape religious persecution, they saw no contradiction in owning slaves. Slaves were widely owned throughout society. The slave trade was protected by the British crown and many friends thought it was necessary for economic growth. Um, Many people at the time justified slavery uh, by racist uh, attitudes uh, toward what many British saw as uncivilized cultures, and sometimes cited Old Testament passages in the Bible for justification. And even William Penn once proudly declared that over the course of a year, Philadelphia received 10 slave ships While some Quaker families treated their slaves no different from anybody else in the family, others are not as gentle. It was common for masters to force themselves upon slave women. A Slave woman in Burlington was beaten to death by her master, yet he was not prosecuted as the grand jury blamed the woman's disobedience as the cause for the beating that led to her death. And uh, planters and merchants who were short of cash could always raise money by selling their slaves to the sugar plantations in the islands where the harsh conditions killed most of them in a few years. The Agitation for slavery grew first among the German and Dutch settlers who lived north of Philadelphia. Um, these settlers were unaccustomed to slavery and refused to the slaves themselves. They saw a contradiction in the slave trade and the teachings of Christ. In their native Germany and Holland, these settlers had been persecuted because of their beliefs. And they saw a similarity between the right to be free from persecution and the right to be free from being forced to work against their will. In 1688, uh, Daniel Pastorius and three other men from Germantown in Pennsylvania, petitioned their local monthly meeting to abolish slavery, citing the Bible's golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The four men also asserted that should the slaves revolt, the pacifist Quakers would in turn need to fight back to protect their families despite their pacifism. And the local monthly meeting decided this issue was uh, fundamental and just, but it was just too difficult and consequential for them to decide on their own and would need to be considered further. So in the usual manner, the meeting sent the petition to Philadelphia Quarterly Meeting, where it was considered and then sent on to Yearly Meeting in 1692. So realizing that the abolition of slavery would have a wide and overreaching impact on the entire colony, Neither the quarterly or yearly meetings wanted to pass judgment on such a weighty matter. The yearly meeting agreed to send a petition to London Yearly Meeting, but there's no evidence they actually did so. And London Yearly Meeting has no record of it. So for several decades after the practice of slavery continued and was tolerated in Quaker society, Uh, Almost 30 years passed before another Quaker petition against slavery was written with sophistication comparable to the Germantown 1688 petition. But the Germantown Friends' condemnation of slavery continued and their moral leadership on the issue influenced Quaker abolitionists in Philadelphia society. Gradually, over the next century, due to the efforts of dedicated Quakers, Friends became convinced of the essential wrongness of the institution of slavery. Many of the Quaker abolitionists published their their articles anonymously in Ben Franklin's newspaper. Among the best known of these abolitionists was John Woolman of Mount Holly meeting. As a clerk, he refused to draw up wills that bequeathed ownership of slaves to heirs. Over time and working on a personal level, he individually convinced many Quaker slaveholders to free their slaves. When he visited the home of a slaveholder, he made it a point to pay the slaves for their work in attending him. He also spoke out on how slavery degraded not only the slaves, but the moral conditions of their owners as well. In 1676, a proclamation was written by Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, banning the owning of slaves. By that time, many Quaker monthly meetings in Delaware Valley were attempting to help freed slaves by providing funds for them to start businesses and encouraging them to attend Quaker meetings and educate their children. After the passing of Fox and the early leading friends Quakerism itself moved away from the dynamic radicalism of its birth and with the benefit of productive farms and profitable trades many Quakers became prosperous and content and settled into a conservative quietist formalism. It has been said that the Quakers came to America to do good but did well instead. Um, By the end of the pre-revolutionary colonial era Quakers were no longer in the majority in West Jersey or Pennsylvania. Other English immigrants from the British Isles and Germany established their own churches. In addition, many second, third generation Quakers grew tired of the strict code of conduct and rules of marriage imposed by friends and left their meetings for traditional Anglican churches and the Methodist movement that arrived in the early 1700s. The end of Quaker government in West Jersey came in 1701 when East and West Jersey were united into one province and a royal governor was appointed, although many Quakers were still prominent in the assembly. William Penn's sons continued their father's proprietorship of Pennsylvania until after the revolution. Even after the colonies achieved independence, many Quakers held prominent positions in government, trade and science for generations to come. Even today, the legacy of early Quakers can be found in American society. When William Penn drafted the Charter of Liberties for Pennsylvania, he included many of the ideas first used in West Jersey's concessions and agreements, but expanded them to include the right to a free and fair trial by jury, freedom of religion, and freedom from unjust imprisonment, and free elections. And the revolutionary patriot James Madison, whose wife Dolly was a Quaker, referred to Penn's charter when he drafted the first 10 amendments to the Constitution what we today call the Bill of Rights. So many of the freedoms enjoyed by Americans today can be traced back to the first Quaker settlers along Delaware River. So to wrap up, um, I believe it's important for those of us who are friends today to know and understand the history of our faith community so that knowing what our origins and experiences were, we can strengthen our faith and better inform our decisions to keep our community strong for generations to come. So thank you for listening.
2: Does anyone have any questions?
0: Yeah, I was uh, getting ready to type it. I was wondering if you could say anything about um, what happened to Quakers during the revolution? Um, there was a division in the community uh, Many Quakers were, weren't ready for independence. They also didn't believe in, in war. So they were not uh, active um, in the rebellion. Other Quakers though um, were, and uh, they formed a group called the Free Quakers which would still meet and worship in the manner of friends, but they relaxed the prohibition on uh, joining the military. It was a guy, uh, William Matlack, who was a secretary to the uh, Continental Congress, who may have actually written the Declaration of Independence and uh, uh, served on Washington's staff during the war Uh, Another uh, Quaker was Nathaniel Green from Connecticut, who uh, served in the Revolutionary Army and uh, actually became a famous general. So, but there was conflict in the community uh, locally because many Quakers were refusing to participate in the fighting. Uh, They were arrested by the, Uh, They were accused of being Tories. Some of them were. They had a lot of uh, trade interests with the English, which they weren't ready to give up. Um, And then some of them just being pacifists were looked at uh, with suspicion um, by the rebels. So uh, yeah, as a whole, the Quaker community really uh, didn't choose one side over the other. They were split depending on um, the individual's uh, conscience. But after the revolution, um, the separation between the people who call themselves the free Quakers and uh, the regular Quakers uh, ended. Jen, go ahead.
3: Hi, um, I'm, uh, I joined this today because I found out that I have an ancestor, eighth great grandfather who came over on, on um, in, eight, in 1681 on the, um,
0: uh,
3: ship E-owners, um, E-Owner's Adventure. E-Owner's Adventure. And I noticed that, uh, yes, very cool. And one of the hist- uh, historical houses in West uh, Pensacon was built by his grandson, I believe. And it's privately owned. But I'm wondering if there are times when there are tours of specific um, Quaker um historical homes and things in, in this area. If there's a time of year that those things happen or where I can find out more information regarding my ancestors.
0: Um, sure. Uh, the Griffith Morgan house in Penn uh, It during normal times is open. The, I believe the first Sunday of every month. Okay. Um, they have a nice little library. There's also a, Uh, You might wanna check out Camden County Historical Society. They published a book back in uh, 1976, actually a republish of a book from 18 something um, by Judge uh, Clement. It's called The Early Settlers of Newton Township. And it has detailed biographies of the uh, uh, the heads of the six families that came over on Yoner's adventure, uh, as well as a lot of other settlers, early settlers in Camden County.
3: I think um, I've read excerpts from that. Thomas Thacker yeah. was my uh, ancestor.
0: Okay. Yeah, he was one of the Irish Quakers, right. And uh, if I memory serves me well, he was very active in uh, Newton meeting. And in the and quarterly activities, great as as was his uh, yeah his wife and the whole family.
3: I have one other question. I saw through the lineage that a lot of my ancestors ended up moving to Indiana. Was there a movement of Quakers to Indiana in particular during a certain period of time, or was that just happenstance?
0: That well, um, American society as a whole tended to emigrate off the East Coast. Um, Families might have a large number of children. And as the the families grew, um, the children would move farther away from the original homestead to uh, uh, settle new land. Um, There was a significant, there still is a significant Quaker uh, community in Indiana especially around Richmond, That's there's, where a Quaker, they were. Yeah, there's a Quaker College around Richmond. Um, interestingly enough though, uh, if you've ever seen, there's a movie that came out in the 1950s called Friendly Persuasion. I've seen it. With, uh, Grace, with Grace Kelly, yeah. Yes. Um, That's, I, that was
3: my first uh, introduction to Quakers actually, and I had no idea at the time I had ancestors that persuasion. Mm-hmm. Quakers. Thank you very much. Uh,
0: thanks for joining
2: us. <laughs> Candy, I saw your hand up. Did you have a question?
4: Uh, I had just uh, typed it in. You just answered it. I, okay. was, I was wondering about Gary's thoughts on the 1957 movie *Friendly Persuasion* as it related to war and Quakers. <laughs>
0: um, I love it. It's a good movie. It, uh, my personal opinion, it. Addresses the uh, crisis of conscience that friends always have in a time of conflict. It's one thing to say on a uh, uh, sunny spring morning, hey, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in war. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing to say you're a pacifist when people are threatening your home and your family. And uh, I've seen that down uh even to the present day when i started going to haddonfield friends there were two men um who had taken different paths during world war ii uh one was harold heritage who was a young man was drafted served in the army air corps and didn't think twice about it and the other was uh, lyle tatum who resisted being, uh, resisted the draft, resisted serving in war industry, and was actually arrested and did time for it. Um, These two guys were the best of friends. So they, they each chose what they thought was best for their conscience, but neither of them held it against the other person. From what I can see, most men who were of military age during World War II did serve in the military. Um, it was the exception not to serve at uh, in two, two decades later uh, in 1960s in Vietnam. That, I don't think that was the case anymore. I think uh, because of the nature of the war, a lot of uh, friends weren't comfortable with it and they declined to participate. Um, so even I think up in the, the 1990s, when the Gulf War, um, in the 2000, the second Gulf War, there was a lot of mixed feelings in in the meetings I was a member of.
2: Um, Carlton has a question. Um, Did differences arrive in Quakers who went to America versus the ones who stayed in England, as in their beliefs and practices?
0: It's a great question. I believe um, this is me shooting from the hip, but I believe that the Quakers in Philadelphia yearly meeting are as close to traditional Quakers um, in England as any place else in the country. Um, When uh, Jenny asked about the Quakers moving to Indiana, as Quakers got farther away from the East Coast um, and started new uh, communities, they often mixed uh, with members of other churches. And the meetings that they set up reflected a mix of ideas uh, mainstream Puritan, Quaker, um uh, but I believe here in, in the Philadelphia area, it's uh, we are close to um, Quakerism as it's practiced in England. I know uh, patients and uh, Susanna last year actually visited Oxford meeting in England, so maybe they could speak to that.
1: Um. Okay, put on the spot. It was actually in February, but from what I understand, um, Oxford meeting, they had the official elected position with terms called an elder for the meeting, and they're a little bit less um, Christ-centered, and another thing to think about Oxford meeting is that they do not have the splits that American Quakers do with evangelical Quakers, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Cool. In attending Cambridge meeting uh, about eight years ago, nine years ago, uh, I did felt like a um, Morristown meeting uh, in, in style and basic way, but I don't know if that's the general way it is. What was interesting to me about Oxford was that um, the people I I spoke to um, were really appalled that Americans had uh, male and female meeting houses, I mean, uh, monthly meetings. That apparently did not exist in England. I I don't know if you know anything about that, Candide, if you saw that. Um, The other thing, too, is they only have one yearly meeting. It's Britain yearly meeting. And then they also have Ireland yearly meeting. I was planning on attending this year, but of course the uh, virus threw all that up. Hmm. So there, there certainly are some um, big differences between American Quakers and British Quakers.
0: About, um, I think it was back in 1998. I was uh, traveling on business, and I. It was drive as a Sunday morning. I'm driving from Columbus, Ohio, to Detroit, Michigan, and I was I didn't I figured I, I had nothing else to do that day, so I figured I'd take the back roads and see some of the scenery. And uh, I passed by. Uh, it, was, it was like ten o'clock, or a little a few minutes before ten o'clock on Sunday morning. This backcountry road, I passed by this building. It was called Friends Church. Uh, mm-hmm. Worship at ten a.m. So I figured, well, this, you know, I had nothing else to do. And when else would I have an opportunity? So I, I stopped in and I went inside and everybody was sitting down and uh, it, although it, they call themselves friends, their, their manner of worship, they had a minister up uh, standing by an altar with a rail separating the altar and the, uh, the seats. And he gave a, uh, uh, a fire and brimstone message. I don't recall if there was silent worship, but uh, I went up after the meeting and introduced himself and told him I was a member of a, a meeting that belonged to Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. And uh, he looked at me like I had two heads, shook my hand and said he had to leave. Um, so I, I think there's a big difference, at least in America, between meetings here in the Delaware Valley and those out in uh, Central US and West Coast.
2: So I'm gonna plug my writing real quick. I spent a year driving around the country visiting different um, different Quaker or, or friends churches and meetings and um, exploring the difference and writing about the difference between evangelical friends and, um, f uh, F um french friends united meeting and um orthodox meetings and um what we consider meetings in our areas as unprogrammed um and the ways their history diverged and um the way they practice today and a lot of the differences between our monthly meetings and their yearly meetings and It's all available on the PYM website under the heading uh, Travels with Josh. Um, So if anyone wanted to find out some more information on the differences and why some of the differences in yearly meetings evolved, um, there's lots of information there. Josh, that's under uh, PYM.org or what? PYM.org. If you search PYM.org and Travels with Josh, you'll find a whole bunch of logs. Thank you. I'm curious about if you know more about um, some of the early Quaker structures. Like you, you mentioned, they lived in caves. Like How did that happen? Do you know anything? The, um,
0: the Delaware River, in a nat- um, before European contact, natural state, Rose and fell about 10 feet a day. So, along the riverbank in Philadelphia and in Burlington, the, uh, uh, from the water line to the top of the bank was higher than a man's head. So, they were able to carve temporary structures uh, into the bank to use. And they didn't use these for long, just long enough to go up and uh, cut down trees and put together some rough huts until uh, uh, more uh, firm uh, buildings could go up. Um, Does that answer your question? Yeah. One thing, too, is talking about uh, rivers and streams, and uh, Sharon and patients have heard me preach about this. Prior to European contact, the creeks and streams in our area were a lot wider and a lot deeper than they are today. Um, I believe that ocean-going sailing ships could go up the Pensacola Creek as far as Santa and uh, other uh, craft could go as far as uh, far. Up the south branch of Pennsylvania Creek, as far as uh, uh, what's now King's Highway. Um, The European uh, agricultural methods often been compared to strip mining. And as they uh, tore away the uh, ground cover, the streams became silted up. Mm -hmm. So that if you see the, if you ever go by Pennsalkin Creek today through Cherry Hill, you can see you can uh, barely float a toy boat in there, but then you read about people moving in, uh, in some of the records, people moving uh, small barges of pine pitch lumber up and down these creeks. So you just have to, when you see these creeks now, you just have to imagine what they look like uh, without 400 years of silt.
2: Carlton asks, "Did any of the original Native Americans set foot in meeting houses uh, currently in South Jersey?"
0: Um, perhaps. <laughs> do um, you, do, you,
2: do you have any um, any more details about um, how Quakers related to Native Americans?
0: In uh, Judge Clement's book. He writes um, about incidents where no local Native Americans visited Quaker meeting for worship. Uh, legend has it that there were even Native Americans at Elizabeth Haddon's wedding. Um, how much of that is, can be documented, I'm not sure. Most of the local meeting houses went up uh, in the later part of the 18th century and the 19th century, by which time most of the uh, Native Americans had left our area. So it's uh, it's difficult to say. I do know also, though, that according to Judge Clement's book, he writes about several early settlers who. Uh, uh, married Native American women. So clearly they would have uh, participated in Quaker meeting for worship. But if um, I believe the, the Nicholson family, um, the, they, one of their early children married Native American women who lived along the Timber Creek. Uh, one of the settlers who came over on Yoner's Adventure Um, His wife died shortly after they arrived, and then he married uh, a woman in Burlington, a Native American woman up in Burlington. Um, And uh, some Native Americans became servants in the homes of Quaker settlers. Uh, William Biddle up in Mansfield. William Biddle, of course, was the uh, uh, first member of the Biddle family in America, you know, little Bailey Banks and Biddle and Biddle Banking. Uh, it's recorded that he had an Indian servant living in his house. So it's possible he went to meeting for worship with them. Um, but do I have, can I cite source documents? No.
2: Um, Candy, you had a question.
4: Uh, Yes, I was wondering, uh, back when you were talking about the caves, um, uh, Benjamin Lay, was there, I I was out of this room for a bit taking care of my dad, so maybe you've spoken about this, but uh, was he very influential, what's the general thoughts on his part of this history, and um, have you by any chance written an essay or a book on any of this stuff? Um,
0: Benjamin Lay, a I'm not as familiar with Benjamin Lay, I'll be honest with you, as I am about uh, John Woolman. Um, Benjamin Lay, from what I understand, he was a hermit, and uh, he spent time living in a cave. Other than that, I I don't know that much about him. Um, Regarding the book, yes, thank you for asking. I have written a book. Uh, It's the, I actually just recently finished the third draft of it. Uh, last year, I sent it out, solicited for publishing, uh, received some feedback from a couple of uh, agents. So I'm working some of the feedback into my draft, and then I'm going to try soliciting it again. Uh, my book is Historical Fiction, which takes place in the 1690s. Um, and I, I use historical fiction as a vehicle because I think it it makes history more interesting than just you know, reciting facts and figures. But thank you for asking. And if anybody uh, uh, wants was more, was more interest on that, you know, please email me or message me. Um, yeah.
2: Did um, Carlton asked, did slaves of Quakers who had them attend meetings? Um,
0: There was a book that was circulated in Haddonfield Friends uh, years ago called View from the Back Bench which described the uh, experiences of uh, uh, early Blacks uh, who tried to attend Quaker meeting. Yes. Yes. Many Quakers encouraged their slaves to attend religious meetings. Um, Not all did. And Quakers were probably no more, on racial matters, Quakers were probably no more uh, evolved than their society as a whole at the time. So, uh, from what I understand early uh, Blacks who attended Quaker meeting uh, may not have been as welcome as uh, uh, other people. Um, probably something I should do more, more research on. Uh, one of the, the ideas that came that was prevalent at the time when they, they thought about enslaving people was that uh, in Africa as living outside of Christianity, these people really weren't free because they had no knowledge of Christ and eternal salvation. Uh, so that some people claimed that by enslaving them and teaching them about Jesus, they were actually helping them to be free. But whether or not uh, this, Translate into actually taking along the meaningful worship? No, I, I don't think so. That's a, well, it's an interesting question for this time because with everything that's happened this year, this country as a whole is taking a deep look at uh, the role of uh, black slavery in our country's origin. I think that when we look at history, we're looking for a a feel good story about heroic people who came over, prevailed against the odds and set up this wonderful country. And a lot of times when we start talking about how um, the European settlers treated um, black slaves and native Americans, it's not always as feel good. And it leads to a little bit of soul searching about where we are as a country.
2: Um, we have a question from Ben, and then Sue, you're going to be next, okay? Um, ben, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit.
0: Okay, um, sounds good. <laughs> I know I asked too many questions, but I was really curious.
2: So, so Ben asks, um, what if there, if there were ministers in um, English uh, Quaker meetings and um, did that change when people came to America?
0: Early Quakers and uh, even Quakers today recognize that while it's not necessary to receive a formal theological education to spread the message of, uh, spread God's message or a gospel message, Um, There are people who tend to have a gift of ministry and from earliest Quaker times, they were recognized as sometimes called traveling friends or public friends. And that did come over with the first generation of Quakers. Uh, John Estall, who married Elizabeth Haddon, was a uh, a traveling Quaker or a uh, friend in the ministry. And uh he actually traveled up all along the uh, the English North American colonies through Central America and through the Caribbean, uh, spreading the gospel and uh, uh, preaching. So, yeah, there, there were uh, public friends. And they became like... Uh, uh, it might be a poor comparison, but they were like the rock stars of the day. Um, like yearly meeting, they would say, okay, well, we're gonna get this speaker to come from Rhode Island and this woman's gonna come from Connecticut. And oh boy, hey, let's go to yearly meeting and we'll hear these famous speakers. Um, so yeah, there, there were some recognized uh, public ministers. Well, thanks for, thank you for telling me that. Interesting.
2: Sue,
4: go ahead. Um, I, I I prefaced this with I, I I have been walking back and forth doing some chores, but when you're talking about African Americans and the way they were treated, um, and I don't know if it was mentioned or not, but uh, the book "Fit for Freedom, Not for Friendship", Friendship by Vanessa July is like the seminal, I guess, book of mm-hmm. uh, a history of African American Quakers from way back when right through present day so it's not a, it's not always an easy read but it's who yeah. we were
0: yeah and then the other book was uh view from the back bench
2: so what was the name of that book fit for freedom
4: not for friendship by vanessa july she's a member of central philadelphia it was written in the 90s i think mid 90s
0: Um, some Quakers, though, I mean, it wasn't all, uh, terror. Some Quakers treated their slaves like members of their family. Um, they would live under the same roof and eat at the same dinner table. But the larger the number of slaves on a given, uh, Uh, plantation or farm, usually the uh, poor quality uh, of life the uh, the slaves had. Actually, as I'm thinking about going back to uh, someone's question earlier about uh, Quakers in the revolution and um, how some pacifists sat out while others participated. That was also an issue uh, during the Civil War, as we've mentioned about the uh, movie Friendly Persuasion. But around Richmond, Indiana, there was actually a, uh, a regiment of Union soldiers raised from the local Quaker community that participated and fought for the North. I am, um, as someone who, who
2: enjoys voting and stuff, do you um, do you have any knowledge? Just must be totally irrelevant, but do you do you know what that journey was like for the early Quakers? Um, like where they left from, and like what kind of um, reception they received when they got here?
0: Um, major ports, the major port in England at that time. Uh, for transatlantic sailing was Bristol. There were a large number of merchant houses. Um, And uh, also London, of course. Um, In Ireland, Dublin. Um, Although I believe that Euner's Adventure might have actually sailed from London. Uh, And then when they arrived before um, the uh, Western Pennsylvania colonies, many uh, Quakers went to New England, the established English colonies. And the, they did suffer uh, some persecution from the Puritan uh, church leaders at that time. Other Quakers landed down in the lower colonies Virginia Carolina um, but after 1776 when Philadelphia yearly meeting banned the ownership of slaves by its its members many Quakers became very uncomfortable living in southern society southern slave societies so they gradually emigrated back north um, to the mid-atlantic although small I believe small uh, Quaker meetings did persist and probably still do down in uh, south southern part of the U.S. Um, the Quakers who arrived in, in uh, the Delaware Valley, the Delaware Valley was pretty much vacant as far as Europeans go when the Quakers arrived. There were some small uh, Swedish and uh, Dutch settlements in Uh, Newcastle and what we call now called Swedesboro. Um, Chester, Pennsylvania was a Swedish settlement called Upland. Um, But these were were very small communities and they weren't really in a position to uh, uh, resist the the, the Quaker uh, uh, colonization. There was actually what's now Philadelphia along uh, the Schuylkill River out in uh, uh, South Philadelphia. Uh, there was, was a place called Pasyunk, which was an Indian town for about 400 people. And a lot of what's now Center City, Philadelphia was a Swedish farm owned by a family named Rambo. Um, but these people were just this sheer numbers of English settlers just pre- pretty much pushed aside everyone else who was here. In the uh, Delaware Valley.
2: Um, Dietrich asks um, if you've studied Quakers during the Civil War um, and abolitionist movement. Dietrich, did you have any specific question about that? Just, just um, what I've,
0: I've, have you studied Quakers during that time period and like certain individual Quakers, maybe like uh, Lucretia Mott? Um, or, or other uh, Quakers involved in the abolitionist movement? Have you studied any individuals or like biographies and stuff like that? Um, no, probably no more than, uh, than the average person. Uh, my interest has been focused more on uh, the early colonial period from like uh, 1660s up until uh, the early 1700s. So there's probably, there's probably a lot of interesting, uh, uh, work that can be done to Quakers during the abolitionists and Civil War period. But, uh, personally, I haven't really, I'm not really that familiar with it yet. Um, I do know, I do believe that the book Little Women was either written by a Quaker or it was about Quakers. Okay, Gary, uh,
3: One of the things that I uh, was curious about, when when the people from Yoner's Adventure arrived in West Jersey, I believe I read that they shared the acreage that was given to them for a period of time. And then at some point they decided that community living wasn't working and they somehow split up uh, the acreage to become, uh, so that they owned just certain lots. Do you know, did something happen that caused that? Or how was that community living? What, what was that? What did that community living look like?
0: Um, well, that's a great question. When the first uh, settlers arrived on Newton Creek in uh, 1681, they built their first cabins very close to each other. And one of the cabins owned by uh a family named Newby uh, actually became, was used for the meeting house. There was a lot of work to be done. And so they did work communally clearing land. So they would have a common area to great, to uh, uh, graze their cattle and plant their food. Everything that these people ate, everything that these people wore, every tool that they used, they had to uh, create themselves. So the first maybe half dozen years, they needed to work together uh, to survive. Um, they were joined by the community at Pine Point, which was uh, William Cooper and his sons, and uh, as well as the, uh, the Coles family and uh, a couple other uh, Quakers. So they were able to, after a while, uh, as they cleared more land um, and their, their families grew, they were able to spread out a little bit and uh, uh, stop working together as much. If you've ever read uh, any of Thomas Hardy's books, uh, the Wessex novels, he writes about how and he's writing about England, of course, about 200 years later, but he's writing about how the English countryside, all the families in a town or a village will work together Mm -hmm. uh, to plant in common and uh, harvest in common. And uh, after I read Judge Clement's book, and then I read, some of uh, Hardy's books, it began to click uh, what the, how these people would work together and what their communities would have been like. But then as they prospered, they could afford more independent living. And getting back to the, the, the question of uh, uh, African slavery, uh, if you could buy as much land as you wanted from the proprietors. But the law in West Jersey was, you could only claim so many acres for every male in your household. So servants counted as members of the household uh, and slaves did too. So if say I want, to say I needed, uh, just grab a number one male member of my family for every hundred acres and I have two sons. So now I can only have 300 acres, but if I have five slaves, now I have 800 acres. Um, so my personal opinion for, for, for whatever it's worth is, I believe that, uh, slavery helped disunite the early settlers from their, uh, original, uh, community standard. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Christine asks, um, did the location of where the Quakers settled influence worship styles and belief? Um, She mentions that um, her descendants who settled in Cape May, I'm sorry, she's descendants of people who settled in Cape May and they fought in the Revolutionary War.
0: I believe during the pre-revolutionary period uh, the manner of worship from one Quaker meeting to another between what's now the state of Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey was pretty standard um, as g- several generations passed. It may have been a little bit more uh, watered down or diluted, depending on uh, Quaker's interaction with their neighbors or on some of the attitudes of key members of an individual meeting. Um, um, There was in the early 1690s, a uh, schism called the Keithian Controversy, which took place uh, in and around Philadelphia. There was a Scotch Quaker named George Keith who felt that unprogrammed worship uh, was uh, getting too far away from fundamental Christianity. And his solution was to set up a Quaker clergy with himself as the head. And this uh, uh, a. Keith's appeal uh, ran along class lines so that the more established uh, wealthier Quakers were often content with the status quo, but the uh, younger, less well to do Quakers uh, might've been more open to persuasion uh, to pursue uh, changes. Uh, I think that the most common solution for people who weren't content with the, uh, the traditional Quaker method of worship uh, was to uh, join one of the other churches, either the uh, the regular Anglican church. Uh, after Keith was pretty much uh, denounced and run out of town by Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, he... Uh, Came back, and uh, uh, as a Anglican minister, and then also at about that time, uh, the Methodist movement in the early 1700s swept through the area, and uh, like the Quakers from a generation before, Methodism was very uh, evangelical and exuberant, and uh, so a lot of. People left uh, Quaker meetings to become Methodist. Um, does that answer your question?
3: Yes, thank you. Okay. Down the line, my um, I saw in the 1800s, 1830s, my family members became Methodist. They all kind of married out, I guess, of the Quaker faith. So yeah. thank you.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, one thing that it's a a lot of people now don't understand about the first generation of Quakers was that they were very puritanical. Um, They had a very dour lifestyle. They didn't believe in music or entertainment. Um, I kind of joke with people that the early Quakers came from the 1660s and not the 1960s. So when you see people coming to a Quaker meeting today, Thinking that this is, you know, hate Ashbury. Um, uh, sometimes they're disappointed to find out that the original Quakers were uh kind of dull and boring. Um, and also the a lot of the uh the rules and regulations that the early Quaker meetings imposed upon their members. Um, people some people felt it was an intrusion into. Matters that had nothing to do with their faith, and they left their meeting. Um, I remember Harold Heritage telling me about his grandmother, who was uh, a member of Haddonfield Meeting back in the mid 1800s, who was read right out of meeting for wearing a hoop skirt. And when they first, before they read her out of meeting, they approached her and told her that it was very scandalous. To go around wearing hoop skirt. It was very vain, and that wasn't Quakers were about. And she was a very rebellious young lady, and she said she was going to wear her hoop skirt, and she was right out of meeting. Um, you now, Harold's, Harold's family obviously went back to Adenfield meeting, and they're still there today. But uh, I think it's just an example of uh, how some of the. Um, expectations of monthly meetings could be overbearing and push people away
2: one of the interesting things that i found in my travels out west was the um quaker meeting houses were often the first structures that um that were built as people settled westward and um they started to adapt their worship style to the people who were coming with them. So yeah. rather than, than keeping strictly Quaker, um, keeping with strictly Quaker practice, they were also often traveling with a number of people who were um, of various religions, and thus some of the evangelical style of worship with the minister and um, became more and more common and kind of evolved into, um, what we consider today, um, Ohio, yes, Ohio Evangelical Friends Church, um, which is a yearly meeting. Um, we have, do you, we're going on 1140. Um, okay. Then, um, thank you all for being here. Let's, let's thank Gary, um, we have reactions. Thanks, Gary. That was great. Really enjoyed it. Me too. I learned Thank a you. lot. Thank you so Me much, too. Gary. It was a great presentation.
0: Thank you for listening to Clearly Quaker. We hope you have found this podcast thought provoking. If you have questions or comments, or would like to learn more about South Jersey Quakers, reach us at Salem Quarter dot net.